1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 1 Now concerning the times and the seasons brothers you have no need to have anything written to you for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security Then sudden destruction will come upon them, as labour pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober, For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Here ends the New Testament reading. Heavenly Father, as we uh, look now to your word, please would you help us uh, by the power of your spirit to understand it, and please would you help us to apply our lives to it. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Do please have a seat. Sure, most of us uh, have a diary, uh, don't we? Whether it be a, uh, a small, old-fashioned sort of personal one, pocket one, uh, uh, maybe you've got one like me, uh, uh, sort of a larger A5 Firefax type, or I guess increasingly these days one of these electronic uh, ones. Diaries are good, aren't they? Because uh, they allow us to plan for things. They allow us to make preparations for future events. So, I don't know, maybe uh, at the moment uh, you're planning for a wedding at the moment. Anyone here planning for a wedding? I can see Adele looking a little bit uh, (laughs) shy there, you know. Um, Matt and Adele know they are getting married in two weeks' time. And uh, knowing that date has enabled them to make preparations. Well, probably Adele more than uh, Matt has been making some uh, preparations. But everything from booking a venue to uh, sorting out uh, the guest list, working out what clothes uh, uh, people need to wear and so on. Knowing that date, keeping it in the diary, is enabling them to live today in light of a future event. The decisions they are making uh, in the present are all in light of what is going to happen in just two weeks' time now. <laughs> just two weeks away. Which makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And, and, is, and is all well and good for human activity. But what about, uh, uh, what about the difficulty that we find with the promised return of Jesus? Because that's not really uh, an event that we can uh, put in the diary. We may be convinced it's going to happen, but we don't know uh, how to put it in our diaries. And when an event doesn't go in the diary, then the decisions of today are unlikely to be influenced and shaped by it. And this is exactly the kind of issue that Paul was trying to address with that young Christian church in Thessalonica. Even though they don't know when, 
How will Jesus' return shape the way they live in the present and the decisions they make? So let's just turn back to that if you haven't already. You need to be on page uh, 987. That will get you back to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I don't know if you've tried reading through the book in, uh, in one sitting. Uh, if you haven't done it at all, or indeed if you haven't done it recently, uh, as we've been going through this series, I really recommend it. It, it doesn't take long, and it, and it gives you a, a great idea of what Paul's general thrust is as he, uh, as he writes. Uh, it's a really positive, affirming letter. Paul is, is thankful for, for the believers, and he wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be encouraged by truth. And he wants them to be encouraged by hope. And we saw that last time at the end of, uh, at the end of chapter 4. So how Paul wrote to encourage those who had friends who had died. And they were worried about that. They, what had happened to them, they'd obviously asked. Well, Paul says, don't worry, those Christians who, who have died, they're just actually asleep. Jesus is coming back, and so they will rise when Jesus comes back. Of course, one obvious question leads straight on from that, though, doesn't it? When? When is Jesus uh, coming back? Let us know, they said, and we'll put the date in our diary so we can be ready. And here Paul anticipates the question at the start of chapter 5. And so having used the fact of Jesus' return to transform their thinking about death, he now uses the timing of Jesus' return to hopefully transform their thinking about life and how they're living now. So let's look at how he does that. the headings are on the back of the, of, of the service sheet, so you can follow through there as well. Firstly then, Paul addresses when and how Jesus will return. Look at verse 1 of uh, chapter 5 with me. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brother, brothers and sisters, uh, you have no need to have anything written to you. You have no need to have anything written to you. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear or I read that sort of thing, I immediately think, well, they obviously do have some need to have something written to them. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't have put that, would you, Paul? You wouldn't have mentioned it. Or at the very least, you said, there's no need. Grace and peace, Paul. Shortest letter in the New Testament. No, but he, he doesn't. And we usually associate this style with, uh, with a rebuke. You know, I shouldn't really have to say this, but I'm, I'm going to anyway. But in actual fact, Paul isn't about rebuking here. He's about reminding and he's about encouraging, encouraging the believers to hold fast to what they already were aware of. Look at verse 2. For you yourselves are fully aware. In other words, they, they already know. He knows they already know the answer to the question. Why does he know that? Because Jesus had taught it himself and presumably Paul had reinforced that when he'd been with them in person. And so writing to them now, he knows that they know. Nevertheless, never want to pass up the opportunity, Paul reminds them of a number of insights as to what the return of Jesus will be like. Briefly, he gives three. Firstly, it will be momentous. Look at verse two. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come. Paul describes the return of Jesus as the day of the Lord. And we heard that earlier in our reading from Joel 2, how how the Jews would have understood that phrase. They understood it to be a a, a hugely unique, earth-shattering, momentous event when God would step in to judge the world. 
For the faithful, rescue. For the faithless, destruction. A day, as we heard, like has never been before nor will be again. A day when the earth quakes and the heavens tremble. A day that is great and very awesome. That's what we heard. And and one thing is very clear from such Old Testament texts. This will not be a private event. Everyone will know about it. There will be consequences for everyone, believer and unbeliever. It will be momentous. Secondly, it will be unexpected. Look at verse uh, verse 2 again. The day of the Lord will come like what? Like a thief in the night. And this is the first of two metaphors. It's one that Jesus himself had used as well, actually. A thief. And a thief in the night doesn't tend to announce his schedule. He doesn't put up his, his tour dates on a poster, for example. That would be stupid. He plans to come when you least expect it. And you may think, yeah, I, I get that, but, but why is Jesus likened, uh, likened to a thief here? Well, let me just, let me just say and, and, and be clear that the comparison is, is not to the thief's character, but it is to the speed and the surprise of the thief's arrival. So the lesson here is about timing. It is not about character. And so we need to be alert to the fact that Jesus will come again when we don't expect it. That's why when you hear all these predictions and uh, people trying to work out uh, what will happen at the end of the world and prophecies of when it will be, you can be absolutely certain of one thing. They'll be wrong. They're wrong. Because both Jesus and Paul said we won't be expecting it. Thirdly then, it will be sudden and it will be inescapable. Second metaphor, we've had the thief. He now moves on to a woman in labour. Look at at verse 3. While people are saying there is peace and security... Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. See, unlike the analogy of the thief, a pregnant woman expects to go into labor. But she still doesn't know exactly when. But once she is in labor, there's no avoiding it. It's an intentionally graphic and it's intentionally painful metaphor. Judgment is coming. It will be momentous. It will be unexpected. And it will be sudden and inescapable. So it's not unreasonable to think like some of the Thessalonians may have been thinking and wonder if we can work out when Jesus is coming back. But have you ever stopped to consider what it would be like if we knew the exact date? How would we live then, knowing the Jesus deadline, as it were? I'm not sure that would be very useful at all, would it? You know what it's like when we, when we have a deadline. We often slack before it and then we work like mad, don't we, when it comes upon us? As many of you know, I used to be in the, uh, in the RAF. And as in many areas of work, the Nimrod Force had its own standards unit. The dreaded checkers. I guess they're a bit, they were, were a bit like Ofsted. And what, what we all dreaded on my crew was our annual check week. The standards units, they would fly with us, there would be ground tests on our theory, there would be all sorts of, all sorts of things. But we had notice, and we knew when they were coming. 
And so three weeks prior to the standards visits, the crew would be busy working their socks off. They would be checking their procedures. They would be, um, uh, you know, we'd be making sure that our, our, our safety, um, uh, safety drills were up to scratch, that our equipment knowledge was, was top-notch. And then one year, Bloomin' Standards Unit, they changed their minds. They said, we're not going to give you any notice. You should be working and you should be operating at the expected standard all the time. And so we needed to be ready. We needed to be alert. We needed to be prepared for when we walked into that operations building for, for a flight, only to be met by the standards unit. Friends, in the same way, we need to be ready. We need to be ready for the momentous, the unexpected, the sudden and the inescapable return of Jesus. And part of the reason why we can't put that date in our diaries is because the Lord expects faithful readiness now. If we knew Jesus was coming back in, say, 2020, when would we really start living and working flat out for him? Next week? Next year? 2019? Three weeks before? We need to be ready. Unfortunately, Paul saw this need and he identified four things to help the believers in Thessalonica stay ready. So let's look at those next under our second main heading. Are we ready? This is verses 4 through to 11. Are we ready? And I'm sure you picked up on it when the passage was read through for us earlier, but let me just underline the main image that Paul uses in these verses. It's, it's verses uh, he sets it up really in verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness, brothers, again, and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Do you see his main metaphor here? According to Paul, we are all either people of the day or we're people of the night. We're people who believe and trust in Jesus or we're we're people who don't believe and trust in Jesus. We're people who are awake who are sober and who are dressed, or we're people who are asleep, who are drunk and we're still in our metaphorical pyjamas. Paul writes elsewhere that Christians are those who have been rescued from the domain of darkness and they've been transferred into the kingdom of light. They are those who have the light of truth, the truth that judgment is coming. But with gratitude, they have found their escape through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for those of us who are children of the day, which for the sake of this morning I'm assuming is is, is most of us here, let's see how Paul encourages us to be ready. Firstly, he says, keep awake. Keep awake, verse 6. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Now, does this mean... That if the Lord returns when I'm tucked up in bed, allowing my body to physically rest and recover, then that's just tough luck. No, that's, that, that's not what he's saying here. Paul isn't talking about physical sleep. He wants us to keep awake spiritually. It's a bit like when you, uh, you hit your alarm clock's snoozes button instead of getting up straight away in, in the morning. You know, you get caught in that kind of no man's land. Um, of falling back asleep. Does it happen to you? And then you're kind of dreaming that you're actually getting up and getting up. You're living under that illusion that the day is actually happening and no, actually, you're still asleep in bed. 
Paul, in a, in a way, is saying here, keep awake, don't hit the snooze button. What does that look like? Well, to keep awake means not drifting back to the darkness. It means not drifting back there and living as if the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus has, has, has no impact on the here and now and how we live in 2017. To keep awake means not to get lazy or, or careless in, in what we allow ourselves to read or watch or listen to. To keep awake means being alert to that spiritual battle that is raging all around us. And especially the way in, and especially being especially alert to the way and to the time that we allow temptation to affect us. For me, that's when I'm, I'm tired or I've got too much time on my hands, which isn't often. But that's, that's when, when temptation, I'm most susceptible to temptation. What about you? When are you at your most vulnerable to temptation? When are you most snoozy? Is it when you're worn out? Is it when you're annoyed? Is it when you're cast down or stressed? Paul is saying, keep awake. Keep awake, St. Joseph. Secondly, he says, stay sober. At the end of verse 6, he says, let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. You see, if keeping awake is all about our spiritual readiness, then staying sober is all about our moral readiness. And it's hard to be morally ready, isn't it, when we're impatient. It's hard to be morally ready when we're full of lust. Or when we're angry, or reckless, or literally drunk, or wasting time. And so amongst other things, to stay sober means living now in a, in a self-controlled manner which anticipates and points to that return of Jesus. To stay sober means not coming under the, under the influence of our culture. And accepting immorality, accepting hatred, accepting abuse of any kind. We're going to be looking a little bit about that at the men's conference uh, next week. <clears throat> to stay sober means remembering the reality of hell. And that unless we cross that awkward threshold of actually mentioning it and mentioning the name of Jesus, then many of our neighbours, many of our friends, many of our family are heading straight for it. And that is a sobering thought indeed, is it not? We're encouraged to stay sober. Thirdly, Paul encourages us to get dressed. This is verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Get dressed. Often our, our clothing is, is deliberately and carefully chosen, isn't it? What we wear at night is generally not what we wear when engaged in the activities of the day. And what we do during the day determines what we wear, especially if there's an element of danger involved. And so if we step out in the winter, we generally protect ourselves with jumpers and coats. If we're stepping out to play cricket, we may well pad up and put on a helmet. And so it is with living as a Christian. Each day we're, we're in a spiritual battle and we need to clothe ourselves with the breastplate of faith and love. Each day we need to look up. 
each day and remember that one day we'll meet Jesus face to face. And so wearing the hope of salvation as a helmet is a helpful reminder of our ultimate destination. Paul develops this idea of what to wear further in in Ephesians 6. We've no time to look at that this morning, but again, do look it up uh, 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 later on today. Clothe yourselves then with the best things you can. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hope for the future and love for each other. Finally, Paul says, keep encouraging each other. This is verses 9 through to 11. Verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I love how Paul wraps it up here. I love it. He doesn't ramp up the rhetoric. He doesn't resort to a panicky billboard kind of message, the end is nigh, or anything like that. No. Instead, he gives a loving reminder of the glorious destiny for all believers. And regardless of whether we are physically alive or dead, when Jesus returns, our eternal future is safe. And right now, we need to live in the light of this reality, eagerly looking forward to Jesus' return. Confident that he will come as our rescuer and not as our executioner. And so finally, in in light of these encouraging but sobering words, we come to the challenge of how to apply them. How do we apply what we're learning this morning? I said earlier that for the sake of this sermon, I was assuming that most of us here would identify as being believers. But that doesn't mean that if you are still working things through and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian yet, that this passage doesn't have anything to say to you. In fact, I think there are two main challenges here that Paul wants to leave us with. One for the unbeliever, one for the person who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, and one for the Christian. Firstly then, to the unbeliever. Don't be fooled when today seems (coughs) calm. Don't be fooled when today seems calm. I mean, I know that there's a lot going on in our world that is far from calm. And tragically, we, we've had another stark reminder of that, haven't we? Waking up this morning. But generally, we in the West live in relative peace. In stability. In prosperity. And compared to much of the world, in safety. But the Bible is clear. There is a major storm coming, the like of which has never been seen before. And without Jesus as your shelter and protection, there will be no escape. Maybe an illustration will help understand the urgency. One pastor tells the story of an American man who ordered an extremely sensitive barometer from a respected company. When the instrument arrived at his Long Island home, he was disappointed to discover that the indicating needle appeared to be stuck in the sector marked Hurricane. And so after shaking the barometer several times, which is never a good idea with with a sensitive mechanism, the new owner wrote a scathing letter to the store, and on the following morning, on his way to his office from, from his Long Island home, he put it in the post. That evening, he returned from his office in New York back to Long Island to find not only the barometer missing but also his home. The needle had been pointing correct all along. There was a hurricane. 
And today you may be saying or thinking that there is peace and security. You may feel that life is, is okay. Maybe your, your health is, is good. There's some money in the bank. Summer is here. Summer has arrived. But this doesn't change the fact that the needle on God's barometer is pointing to judgment. Judgment for a life of ignoring God. Jesus may come tomorrow. It may be next year. It may not be for quite a while. But whether you face that judgment now or in the future, Jesus is the only one who can rescue you. So that's the challenge for those here who may not consider themselves or call themselves Christians. And to the believers here, to the believers, this is the challenge. Don't be doing anything today that you wouldn't want to be doing when Jesus returns. Don't be doing anything today that you wouldn't want to be doing when Jesus returns. Again, perhaps an illustration may help. Let me take you back to May the 19th, 1780. New England, America, back in the States. An unusual darkening of the sky was observed then, the primary cause of which is believed to have been the combination of smoke from forest fires, a thick fog, and cloud cover. The darkness was so complete that candles were required for over 24 hours. So I'd like you to imagine that you're in New England at this time, okay? There is no forest fire near you. It actually had come from northern Canada and it drifted south. But you're just going about your normal day, okay? May the 19th, 1780. And all of a sudden, at noon, what happens is the sun turns blood red. The sky turns black and it feels and it looks like the end of the world. And on that day, the local government in Connecticut was meeting. And they had to bring these candles into the darkness. And like almost everyone else in, in, in the area at that time, these men are in fear. They think the world is ending because instant media hasn't been invented yet that can explain where the smoke is actually coming from. All they know is that yesterday the sun was shining and now it is blood red and the sky is darkened and they are afraid. And so they look to a Christian, a man named Abraham Davenport. And they say to him, should we cancel? Should we, should we stop the meeting? Should we go home to our family so that the end might come? And this is what he said, Abraham Davenport. This may well be the day of judgment, which the world is awaiting. But be it so or not, I know only my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy until he come. So at the post where he hath set me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. No faithless servant frightened from my task but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. Therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work. We will see to our work. Bring in the candles. And they did. Friends, we need to live in such a way that if we knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, we'd still say, we're still doing today what he's called us to do. In other words, we wouldn't change a thing. That's the attitude we need to live in the present. Awake, sober, dressed for action, and encouraging each other in the process. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we would ask, Lord, that when today may seem calm, and in a, in a way this day does not seem calm, but when today does seem like that, that we would not be fooled by our peace and prosperity and stability. And Father, I pray that you would help us not to be doing today anything that we wouldn't want to be doing when your son returns. Help us to be awake. Help us to stay sober. Help us to be dressed for action. Help us to encourage each other along this journey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.